Welcome to the Autism and Neurodiversity Podcast. We're here to bring you helpful information from leading experts and give you effective tools and support. I'm Jason Grigla, a licensed counselor and founder of Techie for Life, a specialized mentoring program for neurodiverse young adults. And I'm Debbie Grigla, a certified life coach. And maybe most importantly, we're also parents to our own atypical young adults. Hello, friends. Welcome. We're glad you're here. We're excited to have our special guests. We have Dr. Abby Jenkins and Dr. Todd Corelli. They are both licensed psychologists with over 30 years of experience between them, both providing therapy, assessment services, and independent consulting in a variety of settings. And they do assessments and administer psychological and psychoeducational evaluations in order to clarify each individual's psychological functioning, their learning profile, um, any learning difficulties, and they cover a, a wide range of potential problems. And just as a way of kind of fun fact, Todd played basketball in college and is also in the Guinness Book of World Records for a basketball feat that has yet to be broken. And we want to hear more about this. You, so I actually, my son has taken glee in telling me that he thinks somebody over in the Philippines just broke this record. So I don't know if I believe it or not. <laughs> <laughs> well, what did you do, Todd? So in 1988, we got 10 of us. It took about a year to plan this. And we were working with the American Cancer Society. And uh, we set up a sport court in the Southtown Mall. And we set out to break the world's longest basketball game. The longest basketball game of the time was 102 hours. And so we wanted to do 120 hours because we didn't want anybody to break it after we did it. So we started on Monday at three in the afternoon and we finished on Saturday at three in the afternoon. (laughs) So down in my office, I have these two plaques. One is my PhD plaque and one (laughs) is my Guinness plaque. And so when kids come into my office, they do not care at all about the <laughs> plaque. But when they see no. the plaque, I have instant credibility. So You got yeah. street cred. <laughs> That's amazing. I do. I know. Well, now we're going to have to hear from Abby. What do you got for us, Abby? My cool fact is not nearly as cool. Um, I once held hands with one of the Beatles. I mean, it's still pretty cool, but not as cool. That's pretty dang cool. cool. I was 14 years old. My best friend and I were huge Beatle nerds. Um, And I don't know, the year must have been, I guess, 96. And my friend and I, my mom took us to a Ringo Starr concert in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And while he was singing, we walked up to the stage and reached up and we're like, Ringo, Ringo. And he reached down and held our hands momentarily while he was singing. Wow. It was glorious. Cool. <laughs> cool. Nice. <laughs> now, you guys are located in Utah, right? You're up yep. in Salt Lake, Salt Lake County mm-hmm. area. But yep. a lot of your practice is done traveling or going to the locations. Now with COVID going on right now, it's probably more online. Mm-hmm. Right. So. Um, one of the first questions I guess I would have for both of you is what do, just be basic. What does a psychologist do? What do they not do? How does that compare to some of the other um, professions that people get you confused with? So psychologists are, that's a PhD. And um, typically these are five-year PhD programs. Um, they're, so we've been trained to do research We've been trained to do therapy. We've been trained to do psychological testing. 
the reason that I always liked the clinical psychology path was because I wasn't really sure exactly what I wanted to do at the time, but I knew I wanted to have a lot of options. If you get a master's degree in, you know, social work or counseling or whatever, those are fine, but you're a little bit more limited in terms of what you can do. Sure. Um, so like a psychiatrist is a medical doctor, that's an MD. So they do medication management, uh, but they don't do testing. Now they, they do have some psychologists nowadays that if they do, I think it's like a three-year fellowship in psychopharmacology, they can also prescribe meds. I don't, we don't do that. But Most don't do meds. Most do most do psychologists do assessment or counseling or most do a little bit of both? I think, I think most do counseling. Um, most don't like assessment. I think the reason for that is because assessment involves a lot of writing. And so if you read our reports, they're typically, or, you know, 15, 20 pages or so somewhere in that range. And most people just hate writing. And so I, I don't know what you think, Abby, but that's kind of my impression of why there's a lot of people that have been trained in assessment, but they don't end up doing that as a career. Yeah. Yeah. I think most psychologists starting out kind of depending on what graduate program you go to, you know, different graduate programs, some have a really strong emphasis on research and they really want to train you to become a researcher or an academician and work as a professor um, doing research. Other programs emphasize the clinical aspect more, so really emphasizing therapy and sometimes assessment, but usually therapy. And I, I think Todd and I both like assessment because, you know, we're both scientifically minded, like we like the science piece of it and the data piece of it, um, but we also like the clinical piece, so we get to interact with kids and families and still have that kind of relationship piece of it, but integrating the writing and the, and the scientific aspect as well. So, yeah. I love testing for that reason. It's like being a detective, right? You go in, you get to have a relationship with the kid and their family, and you're really trying to figure out what what's really going on and what's not going on because a lot of kids come in with various diagnoses, especially if they come out of a psychiatric hospital, they're going to come out with a bunch of different diagnoses, many of which are, are questionable. Right. And so you, you were really trying to figure out what's the diagnostic picture for this kid, because that really drives treatment. And um, that's what I enjoy about it. So tell me about assessment. That's kind of what we want to focus on today is, is the assessment piece. For families who are wanting or needing or have been told they should get an assessment, when, when is it helpful to get an assessment? Maybe is there a time when it's not helpful to get an assessment? It's not helpful if you believe the kid will sabotage it or not put any effort into it. There's a, there's a bunch of scenarios where it might not be helpful. Um, if you're over-medicated, particularly on some of the heavier duty psychiatric meds um, where you're sleepy and you know, that sort of thing that might not be a great time for it. If you're actively psychotic, that's going to be a hard time to do an assessment. That's rare though. We don't see that that much. Or like um, coming off of your addiction and you're in the withdrawal period. If you're in yeah, two crises, yeah. that's not a great time. To not do. a great time. No, that's, yeah. those are good points. Crises, addiction, especially if you're just coming off, those are not great times. What, what we get mostly are teenagers that are, are, if they're really resistant, you know, like if mom or dad's dragging them into your office, it's the last thing they want to do. It's hard to get good data. 
That makes sense. Yeah. Right. right. Other than that, if you've got a kid who's open and willing and cooperative, we can usually engage them with rapport and get them to open up pretty easily. And then, then I think you can get a good assessment. I, I really like testing kids who are in treatment programs or actively already engaged in therapy because those kids are already used to talking to people about their difficulties. They usually have a little bit better insight into what some of their struggles are. They're used to talking to relative strangers about things that are, can be really difficult. So like Todd was saying, I think the more open and insightful a person can be about their own experiences, the more fruitful it is for us in terms of getting to the bottom of what's going on. Yeah. So as far as the neurodiverse population goes, what age can you start doing assessment in a way that's helpful? Because our son was diagnosed first with ADHD or some type of behavioral issues, and then it just slowly progresses and develops until you get old enough to see that there's a pattern of issues where you can actually make a diagnosis of autism. Yeah, I mean, you can technically diagnose autism at a very young age, usually, you know, within the first couple of years, depending on how severe it is. It's Clearly, it's a lot, it's easier to diagnose severe autism earlier rather than later. For probably most of, you know, the people you guys work with and who we work with, we tend to see people who are higher functioning on the autism spectrum. So these are people with generally average to above average IQs who do well in many aspects of their life, but, you know, socially and maybe in terms of cognitive rigidity, that's where they really struggle. Those people are a little bit harder to assess because the, the symptoms aren't as clear and they aren't as you know glaring as people who are um, lower functioning on the autism spectrum. So, um, you know, I think we, I would say early to mid teenage years is when we can really get the most data. You know, many of the measures we use when we're doing a comprehensive psychological evaluation. So looking at also looking at things like depression, anxiety, substance use, trauma, personality traits. Mm -hmm. Some of those measures aren't useful for people who are about less than 13 or 14 years old because they just don't have the insight yet to be able to answer some of those questions about themselves. Um, and so around age 14, 13, 14, 15 is when we can really employ the most resources to kind of parse apart what's going on. Right. But if you've got a if you've got a little kid who um, is really struggling socially or with a yeah. really significant rigidity, there's testing doesn't ever harm anybody. There's no side effects from testing, and so if you find somebody who's experienced working with children, um, you can test as early as you want. Actually, yeah. and what about the parents that are afraid of the label creating the problem? That once you put them in the box, they might live up to it what would you say to parents who are nervous about putting labels onto kids? And that's probably the most common misconception that we see out there. Yeah. yeah I, I, we get asked that question a lot. And for somebody who uses labels as part of my profession, I actually in some ways despise the labels as well for the very same reasons that parents do. I don't want to use a label to be any kind of limiting factor in the parents' minds or even for that kid, right? And so, but we have to use language to describe what's going on and, and that's what the, the labels are for. So it's important that you really trust who you're working with. If, you've, if you find a really good experienced psychologist who works with that population of kids, um, 
I don't know, Abby, if you'd add anything else to that, but I, I think we have to use these labels because the labels allow us to know how to intervene and what kinds of interventions to do. I like calling it a, a descriptor versus a label. A label sounds like you're judging someone, and it's not a judgment, it's an assessment, right? What right. were you going to say, Abby? But, you know, the labels are also what give us the ability to provide accommodations and interventions, right? So if you have a young child who's, who's on the autism spectrum or who has a processing speed deficit or who has ADHD or poor executive functioning, we use those labels to benefit you because that's, if you don't use those labels, you don't get those accommodations. You don't get those yeah. special education services. So. Yeah. And what I was, what I was going to add was, you know, especially in the case of things like autism or ADHD, you know, these neurodevelopmental differences that are going to be with a person for their whole life I think it's really important that that person have a good understanding of what that means for them and how that might impact them and what they need to know about themselves so that they can function best in the world. You know, especially for adolescents and young adults, I think Todd and I both really view these these assessments as opportunities for kids to learn about themselves and to help them make better decisions and help them understand why they have some of the struggles they have. It's certainly not to, meant to be punitive or stigmatizing. It's really help, to help them with their personal growth to understand their strengths and weaknesses. Um, and I think it's also really important that, you know, whenever we talk to people about diagnoses, we also talk to them about, okay, here's what we can do about it. You know, it's not just, here's a label, you're stuck with that, go, go live your life. You know, we work actively with the, the, the clinicians who are working with the kiddos and the families to make sure that everyone has a good understanding of, okay, here we've identified some issues and here's what we can do to help mitigate some of those or make some of them more manageable. Yeah. You have to be, you have to be very thoughtful when you talk about giving feedback to a kid about their diagnoses, right? And you, right. you don't want to do it. You know, my favorite story is the girl who, 17-year-old girl, I gave her a test and her parents wanted me to give her her IQ. Her IQ is a 141. And she, my parents would have thrown a party if I scored anyone near that. But I don't normally give numbers out. But the parents really, really, really wanted me to give her the number. And so I, against my better judgment, I relented. I told her she had a 141 full-scale IQ and she started crying. She wept. I was like, what, why are you, she, well, because my sister had a 142, so she's smarter than me, right? Oh, no. So you have to make <laughs> sure that people understand what you're saying. There's no statistical difference between a 141 and a 142. Right. And you want to, I, I love giving feedback to kids. If we can f sort of present it in a way that's helpful, Right. So I'll never say to a kid, here's your diagnosis. You're screwed forever because of this. Right. I'll say, here's what your strengths are and here's where your weaknesses are. That's kind of how I frame it the way That's I all we really care about. That's right. And, and here's a label that we use for that. But this is basically talking about where you struggle. And based on this language, here's the best way to help you. That's really ultimately what a good evaluation is all about is how do we help that that child right and i love the when the students we work with are mostly young adults who are late late teens and if they haven't begun the process of of grieving their typical brain and accepting and being excited about who they actually are that that 
process is really fun and exciting to be a part of. Once they start saying, yeah, I'm quirky. I own it. That's yeah. who I am. Yeah. You know, we know it's a community. Already, yeah. We know we're already up. through half of the issues that are in their yeah. way to being independently happy, healthy, and successful. Yeah. Um, yeah. But if they're stuck on the part that I'm different, therefore broken or therefore bad, that's, yeah. that's a problem. Right. So I, I love being a part of their journey mm-hmm. as they find out who they are. Yeah. I'm really happy to hear that. And I like that you describe it about finding out who they are. I've had a few parents recently whose kids I tested for autism and who were on the spectrum. And, you know, the parents sort of begged me, like, I don't want to tell my kiddo that they're on the spectrum. Like we have to, you know, it's a really important part of them becoming who they are as a person and sorting through, you know, what life is going to be like and how their brain operates differently. And I try to emphasize focusing on this is not necessarily a problem. This is just your, your kiddo's brain is wired differently and that's okay. You know, it's just things, things work differently in your child's brain and that for better or worse. And, you know, there are strengths to being on the spectrum as well that you can really, once you, you know, recognize that you can harness those, but it's really important to be open and honest about those things. Great. So for the moms out there that are looking at getting a psyche valve, how do you actually go about it? Like, do you have any tips on how to find a good psychologist and what, what goes into a good psyche eval? What are they looking for? I've, I have spoken to moms that were frustrated with psyche evals that they received or they didn't agree with it or, you know, so well, one mom went in asking for a psyche eval, And then when she got it, it didn't say anything about autism or learning disabilities. And she questioned them and they said, Oh, you have to ask specifically for that. So we wouldn't have ever looked at autism or learning differences, but the whole reason she got it, was for school. And so it was a complete waste of their time and money. Anyway, what, what can you share that would be helpful to parents to go? I actually, yeah, I know that case you're referring to. It's tricky because we call these different things, but often they're synonymous. We call it a neuropsych. We call it a psychoeducational evaluation. We call it developmental. We call it a psychological evaluation. So you really do, number one, need to be specific in wanting to know what you're trying to answer like what do you want to know if your kids on the spectrum do you want to know why they struggle so much do you want to know why they struggle in math do you want to know why they're depressed whatever it is if you're going in for an evaluation the problem is is that many people like what you're saying jason they'll go in for an evaluation because their kid is really depressed and they're cutting on themselves and they come out with an an eval that is 99% focused on academics and intelligence and cognitive, right? Which is what a lot of neuropsychs do. So you have to make sure you let that person know, here's the questions that I need answered. Number two, um, you've read a lot of evaluations. Most of them are mediocre. Some of them are outright horrible. And some of them are really good. This is just my opinion on what makes a good evaluation. Number one, um, you want to find somebody who has a lot of experience, right? So experience is really critical. Um, you want to know what kind of training and background they have. And do they, if you're looking for, uh, you know, an autism spectrum measurement, does this person work with these kinds of kids? Number two, um, and I don't know how you would look for this up front. I don't even know if I should say that's this. Right. That's why you ask and network and talk to other people who had them because you yeah. You can't necessarily shop for everything that you want. No, but you can ask around and and you can find out. The problem is that I get is a lot of people call me and ask if, are you on my insurance panel? 
I'm not on any insurance panels. And so if you go with who's on your insurance panel, you're going to be limited, right? But if you don't, then you're going to have more options, but it's going to be more expensive. Right. And then in my mind, I think that that investment in a good one could provide services that actually save money down the road. And Yeah, I, that's, that's, I agree with that. So if parents are looking for a psychologist, uh, what, what kinds of questions should they ask besides the ones you just shared? What would be wise for them to know? Yeah, I mean, I think asking questions about what populations of kids they work with most frequently, you know, what areas they specialize in. Not every psychologist in, is trained in assessing autism. Not every psychologist is, works with young children. Um, so I think asking questions about, you know, the groups they work with most frequently and, um, you know, their experience working in different sorts of settings, depending on whether the kiddo is in treatment or at home or at a hospital or that kind of thing. Um, and I think, you know, I get a lot of good questions about, um, you know, my kids' struggles being honest during an evaluation or when talking with professionals, you know, how do you address that? Um, I think just bringing up some common, I think if, when parents bring up to me common concerns they've had with their child specifically, I think if I can answer those and help them understand how the testing process works, you know, that puts them at ease. So I think a psychologist who is willing and open to answering their questions, to kind of alleviating any of their concerns, you know, working with a psychologist is a relationship, right? And you need to feel comfortable and open with that person and feel like they're hearing you and they're responding to your concerns. So I think that's a big thing to look for in addition to the training and experience and the expertise is just having someone you feel like understands where you're coming from and, and can work with you and your child effectively. I think that's actually really important. Do you spend some time talking with that psychologist and did you enjoy speaking with them? Were they super weird and you couldn't connect with them, right? A lot of us are very strange. Were they down to earth? Were they easy to talk with? Do they seem like they would be a good fit for your kid? I mean, those are sort of subtle but really important distinctions. I appreciate that. What, um, what can parents do to come prepared to assist with the evaluation? Should they be documenting behavior? or they, you know, what, what, what can a parent do to help be supportive of the process? Yeah, um, there's a lot parents can do. Um, unfortunately, psychology is not a very precise science as much as we'd like it to be. And we have to rely really heavily on what people tell us. And people's views are always very distorted. So we have to rely on what a lot of different people tell us. And we rely really heavily on parents, especially when we're assessing neurodevelopmental differences. You know, developmental history is so critical especially in the diagnosis of autism. So coming, um, you know, going back through your baby book and seeing when people met developmental milestones and what ages you noticed, what symptoms starting to occur and when things changed, you know, having all of that kind of spelled out chronologically to the extent you can is extremely helpful, not just for us as psychologists, but for you in terms of conceptualizing how these things have developed over time and being able to communicate that with us going back through old records or, you know, if there's been any hospitalizations or previous testing, kind of gathering all those sorts of documents because we like to be able to review and summarize those whenever we can. Great. So it sounds like a psychologist that takes the time 
to answer your questions, you're going to be able to get to know them. It's going to be harder to do that with a psychologist that's that's referred or that you visit because they are part of a state system or even on your insurance panel because they just simply don't have the time. Um, and that's kind of one of the things I've found is that if you're willing to pay the extra money to hire someone who isn't limited by their time, but you have enough money to pay for an extensive um, well done psyche valve that that has been well worth the money because those recommendations are going to be off off by 50 degrees or five degrees and over 15 or 20 years or a lifetime that can make a huge difference in the direction that they end up heading on um, a missed diagnosis can make all the difference in the world so I I it's one of the reasons we had you on is because you really are at the top of your game in the psychology field and you do really great assessments. I've read them. Um, I appreciate them. If they were 40 pages, I wouldn't use you, but they're <laughs> usually in depth and specific enough to give me all the information I need. And to be honest, I, we reread the first page and we jump to the last page. And then if we need to, we go back into the actual results and look at executive functioning scores or other specific yeah. areas. So it's a good me, strategy. <laughs> let, me, let me add something to that. Psychological testing is really truly one of those things where you get what you pay for. And you might get lucky if you find somebody on your insurance panel and you only have to pay a hundred dollars and you might get lucky, but um, it's really, you get what you pay for. Number two, thank you for letting us know that we are concise and that that's okay because <laughs> I don't think the quality of a report is depends on how much it weighs. Right. I think it depends on how well you can articulate what you found and say it succinctly and put it in language that anybody can understand. So if you're reading a bunch of psychobabble, that's a red flag. Right. Yeah, and, and some psychologists really are quirky. If they love the data and the research, they might be a little bit neurodiverse themselves, and you can tell from their report <laughs> which ones are. Holy cow. So, Yes, that's true. Yeah, we, we're going to psychoanalyze you guys based on your reports. It's our turn. <laughs> as a therapist, I had to stop taking insurance to do counseling because I just couldn't provide for my family, and I wanted to do really good counseling and do good quality yeah. service. So I ended up just doing cash pay because I wanted to do really good work, and I found that if I just relied on the insurance, I had to yeah. push counseling sessions through. Um, oh. Back no. to back to back to back to back, and it was going to kill me and kill them, and it wasn't ethical for me even to do. Right. Same with testing. The insurance yeah, wants to tell you what you can, what you can administer, and what you can't. What they'll cover, what you can't, and yeah, I'm not right. about that. So, so I want to go back to diagnosing. We we have mentioned autism a lot. We we are focusing on all neurodiverse areas. What are some of the trends that you're seeing in neurodiversity outside of autism itself that are fairly common? Anything new and upcoming? Anything you're hoping will be in the next DSM or should be that they're not talking about? What are you guys seeing as maybe cutting edge neurodiversity stuff? Hmm. You guys might know more about this than we do. Um, I mean, I think nonverbal learning disorder is a big one. You know, you I think it's gotten. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, and this is not an area of my expertise. Um, you know, I was initially one of those people that I wasn't sure if, if nonverbal learning disorder actually existed. Abby and, and I, I, I <laughs> we had arguments about this. 
Yeah. Well, well, yes, I've come around and I know it's a lot more nuanced, but I just, what I was seeing is I saw a lot of kids with autism who were being diagnosed with nonverbal learning disorder because someone, you know, kind of wasn't gutsy enough to say, yes, this kid has autism. And unfortunately you see that in the autism world. Like a lot of people, you know, back when pervasive develop, develop, developmental disorder, NOS existed, you know, people would start off with that diagnosis and then it moved to Asperger's. And then finally they're like, okay, you have autism when it was really autism all along. And so I think there's, you know, there's some discomfort with diagnosing autism in the first place. And so I was seeing that a lot, you know, people diagnosed with nonverbal learning disorder when it was actually autism. But I've, you know, I've been doing this long enough now and I've seen enough kids where I, you know, there there are significant differences between nonverbal learning disorder and autism. And I'll actually let Todd speak to nonverbal learning disorder because he's done a pretty extensive amount of training in nonverbal learning disorders specifically. So he can kind of talk about the differences a little bit. I think the big difference is that the NLD kids don't have, don't exhibit the restricted interests and they don't have the same level of rigidity that you see with the kids that are on the spectrum. That's really the primary difference. In a lot of ways, there's so much overlap between kids that fall on the spectrum and kids that are have nonverbal learning disorder. I guess another difference would be that in, in NLD or NVLD, whichever one you prefer, there's almost always going to be a really significant split between their verbal and nonverbal abilities, which you get from an IQ test. Typically, the minimum split is going to be about 10 points. So on the WACE, that, that's the perceptual reasoning index versus the verbal comprehension index. On the WISC, that's the visual spatial index in comparison to the verbal comprehension index. Often, we'll see much greater differences. You know, sometimes we'll see a 20, 30, 40, 50 point split between their verbal and nonverbal skills. There's also often a split between their math and reading. So these are kids that tend to be really precocious readers, poor at math, they're poor at visual spatial, they have poor executive functioning, they, they get lost walking from second period to third period, they, they can't follow driving directions. Um, Right. Little little subtleties. Um, they tend to have poor fine motor skills. So these are kids that struggle tying their shoes when they're young. When you measure their fine motor skills, you can see deficits there. Even on the whisk and the waist, there's a processing speed measure where one subtest requires greater fine motor skills than the other. The coding test requires you to actually draw a symbol. This is getting a little technical probably, but the symbol search doesn't require. So you can see little discrepancies between things like that. Mm-hmm. So those are some of the differences that you see. But if someone gets a diagnosis of NLD, how does that affect them in high school for IEPs versus an autism? I don't know that I don't know if schools actually recognize nonverbal learning disorder as a legitimate um, learning disorder that would warrant an IEP. Um, Oftentimes, if I diagnose a nonverbal learning disorder and they have the deficits in math, I'll give them also a specific learning disorder in math, which would help them get an IEP. But I think, um, you know, but this is where I think being diagnostically accurate is really important because if you're diagnosed with nonverbal learning disorder, when you actually have autism, you're not going to have a lot of doors open to you that if you, if you actually had the autism diagnosis, both in terms of, you know, an IEP in school and services down the road. Um, because NL, NVLD is not, you know, recognized in the DSM yet, 
there's not a lot you can get if you're diagnosed with that. So that right. it's really important just to be very accurate about that distinction specifically. One one way that I've sort of gotten around that is you can use the label unspecified neurodevelopmental disorder, right? right? And so right. that is a that is a label. It's kind of a catch-all. It's like what we used to call our NOS diagnoses. And um, s- schools don't, in my experience, schools don't look through your diagnoses and go, yep, that's in the DSM. Yep, that's in the DSM. Oh, wait, wait, that's not in the D- I don't think that they really do that. I think if you use that label and you give recommendations and accommodations and usually an NLD kid is going to have other deficits that, you know, like the processing speed and the executive functioning, there's going to be other things, other diagnostic labels that you can use to base your recommendations for accommodations on. And and I don't think schools for the most part um, give parents a problem with that. One of the things that I see, I'm in a lot of um, Facebook groups for autism, like parents, Mm-hmm. have a kid with autism and I keep seeing it come up where we they wouldn't diagnose with autism for several years because they said my child made eye contact mm-hmm. and now we finally got the autism diagnosis are you, is there some things that are common sort of misconceptions or that parents should be aware that this can be a sign and to keep pursuing getting a diagnosis any thoughts on that yeah, ones I hear a lot, and that's that's a good one. I hear that too. Like my kid makes eye contact, or my kid has friends, or my kid, you know, has empathy for people, or my kid has uses sarcasm. You know, all of these things, you know, can be associated with the autism spectrum, but aren't. You know, they're not necessary to make a diagnosis. And um, I mean, I, I do encourage parents to be persistent. Um, about pursuing that diagnosis. And this might be a case where if you start off, you know, usually parents will start off with like a pediatrician and then maybe they'll go to a child psychologist for therapy and maybe they'll recommend it. And then maybe you'll get testing if your kiddo gets hospitalized and they'll do like a really quick and dirty evaluation to see. I mean, this is when I would recommend coming to somebody like me or Todd or someone who does this sort of more in-depth testing because we can actually take the time and get all, collect all the, you know, historical data and I think make a more accurate diagnosis. Um, so yeah, I mean, parent, you know, as a parent, you know your child best and you know if something is off and you know if something is just not right or you're, there's something missing in this picture. And so I, I do think it is really important to be persistent um, in pursuit of that because it, it, is, it can be easily missed. And again, not everyone has really great training in autism. Um, on the flip side of that, Um, Todd and I last year went to an ADOS training. So the ADOS is the Autism Diagnostic Observation Schedule, the gold standard um, measure used as part of an autism diagnosis. I was trained in it, you know, for several years, um, but kind of wanted to do a refresher. And the woman who was training us was one of the people, she's a researcher who does research on the ADOS and helps develop the ADOS and make sure it stays up to date and that it has accurate norms and that kind of thing. So she's, you know, an expert of all experts on the ADOS. And she told us that, you know, she's actually undiagnosing more autism than she's diagnosing right now. Mm -hmm. And so I think it also can be a common misdiagnosis these days. Um, 
I certainly get a lot of requests for autism testing for, and when I go to meet with the kid, I'm like, no way. And they don't have the developmental history. So it is a complicated diagnosis to make, and there's a lot to go into it. And there's a lot of issues that can overlap and look like autism. So it can, it can go both ways. Right. I don't know that I, I wouldn't want to call it a fad because that wouldn't really be accurate, but it's definitely on everyone's minds more nowadays. And I probably get 10 to 20 times more referrals with this question than I did uh, even five years ago. Right. I've never heard of undiagnosing. That's interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. I just had to do that myself the other day. Yeah. Yeah. Like sometimes it's people like, I think a common misdiagnosis you know, is maybe somebody with ADHD or someone with attachment related concerns or significant trauma. You know, this is the common presentation I think we see is a kiddo who's neurodevelopmentally looks fine. There's no history consistent with autism. And then maybe in the early teenage years, the social skills really fall off and behaviorally they become really dysregulated and there's a lot of rigidity. And turns out it's actually, you know, ADHD combined with trauma, combined with some emerging personality pathology. Sure. And you can um, that out fairly well as a, as a good psychologist. And yeah. That, and that's what, we re, that's what we need. That's what we rely on as a program and as a therapist is artists. <laughs> and it, anybody can give a, a scientific evaluation and, and give the tools um, like the ADOS, but it really takes someone with experience to tease out oh, there's that issue and that issue together. I'm already headed in this pattern direction, but it couldn't possibly be this one because I already know right. what the three points together. Um, and that's where a professional stands out. Yeah. Maybe you could yeah. speak a little bit to the fact that um, a lot of people think an assessment is, like you mentioned, the IQ 141 statistically doesn't make any difference between 141 and 142. How reliable is an assessment and what does it mean and what doesn't it mean when you get an assessment? Oh, do you want me to question. go? You want to go? That's a, a big question. So let me see if I can answer this and then you can correct anything that I say wrong. So <laughs> testing is a data-driven process, right? There's, there is definitely an art to it. There's so, there's so many aspects to testing about rapport and getting a kid to open up and all those things, but it's a data it's fundamentally a data driven process. It's not like I'm going to test your kid and come back and tell you, here's my opinion based on just talking with your kid. So like Abby said, we're, we're trying to get multiple data points. So one data point is from what the parent tells us. One data point is from what the kid tells us. Another data point is from what the teachers tell us. Another one is from what the therapist tells us. And another one is actually what the tests themselves tell us. And these tests give us numbers. So I, if you think your child is depressed and I give them a measure of depression, I'm going to be able to tell you based on this particular number where he or she scores, that's, that's, that's in the depression range or not in the depression range. And it's actually this far into it. It's mild, moderate, or severe. So we can get pretty specific, right? But you have to get cross-validation of the data. So if the teacher tells me that your daughter is depressed, but nobody else tells me, and it's not showing up on the testing, no way am I going to make that diagnosis. But if the teacher, the parent, the kid, the data from the testing, you know, if these things line up and cross-validate, 
then you know you're barking up the right tree. So I don't know, Jason, if that's answering your question very well, but yeah, it does. Okay. Yeah. Did you want to? Yeah, add and I'll just. Yeah, I'll just add in a little bit about IQ specifically. Um, you know, the main reason we assess IQ is not because we really care what someone's IQ is. I mean, the main reason we do it is to rule out any potential problems with how the brain is working. You know, once you're above, you know, 110, 115, it doesn't really make a huge appreciable difference. You know, a person with a 140 IQ, while things are going to come a lot more easily to them, that doesn't necessarily predict better functioning in other areas of your life. And in some studies actually show that the, if you're really intelligent, it causes more problems right. than it solves. So we are primarily interested in seeing if there's any issues going on with the brain that can help explain why kids are struggling emotionally and behaviorally. But, you know, IQ is, there's a lot of, you know, buzz around it and people, I would never want, I fortunately I've never had to take an IQ test. I wouldn't want to know. I would be one of those people who would fixate on it and beat myself up and never be able to move on. And I tell my, I tell the kids, I test the same thing. It's just a number. It's your functioning on, you know, this particular day at this particular time in this particular set of circumstances. And lots of things can impact how you do an IQ test. If you're depressed, if you're anxious, if you're hungry, if you're tired, if you're not motivated, if you're using substances, if you have poor executive functioning, if you have trauma, all of these things impact how you can do on an IQ test. And right. I've tested kids, you know, in the wilderness, at a wilderness program, and then I've tested them a year down the road when they're emotionally doing really well and they're not using any substances. And I've seen differences in, you know, 15, 20 points in some areas. Right. And so there's so much that goes into it that you can't put too much stock in any one number. So I think I, I really urge parents and, and kids to be interpret those things with great caution. I love that you bring that up, too, because we've had um, students come to our school and the parents are like, yes, he's so smart and he has such a great IQ, but then he has this like really low processing speed or right. these other things things that are, are contributing to why he's not the next Bill Gates, you know, and they're so disappointed and can't figure it out. And so I think that's really important to know that that's just one piece of the puzzle and, and that it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be. Well, it's almost like a 140 IQ is its own neurodiversity, right? Because they're right. actually it is. No curve. And it makes that, it puts their brain matter physiologically aligned in a, in a specific direction where they may not be really good at social emotional stuff you know, who knows? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think, I think people who are that intelligent really struggle to relate to other people because their brain just similar to autism, ADHD, your brain just works so differently that it's really hard to be on the same level with other people. And who can say that that's good or bad, right? It's just what it is. Let's get started and get going forward and make a difference. What would you say the minimum amount of time would be for a good psyche valve that you spend with the client? We had psyche valve with our son through the state that lasted at least 10 or 12 minutes, literally 10 or 12 minutes. And, wow. and, and he was a PA and, and he, he wanted was, to get us in and out. <laughs> he was in and out, in and out, in and out. And we know that that was on the bottom end of a good psyche valve and definitely fought and went and got a different opinion in another assessment. But what would you say is a good amount of time for a viable assessment? It depends what you're assessing. Right. Um, 
So going back to this, the ADOS training that we did. So this woman does a lot of autism specific batteries where, you know, she'll administer an IQ test, some language functioning, and this is usually with younger kids. So they, we don't necessarily look so much at language functioning because most of the kids we, we see have good language, but so she'll do language, she'll do an ADOS, she'll do a couple of other measures and the ADOS itself, you know, takes, should take about 40 minutes to an hour at the most. If it goes longer than that, something's not going well. (laughs) Um, So, you know, she can do a full autism assessment in about two hours or less. And, you know, some people say that doesn't sound very long, but, you know, there's not really that much that goes into it. There's a few basic measures and then, you know, parents fill out some things and you get history. Um, For, for Todd and I, we, with the kind of comprehensive battery we do, we usually spend you know, several hours in person with the kiddo. And it, and it really depends on how much the kiddo talks, how, how quick their processing speed is, you know, their level of intelligence and how just quickly they work. Um, we'll do a clinical interview. We do the academic testing. We do an IQ test and then tests of executive functioning. For most kids, school-age kids, um, they're able to get through that in about three to four hours, um, depending on how quickly they work. Then on top of that, kids also, a big part of the testing process, especially for older kids and adults, is filling out a lot of self-report measures. So hundreds and hundreds of questions about, you know, their thoughts, feelings, experiences. So no right or wrong answers, but just long and time-consuming. And these are the measures Todd was talking about. You know, these are all measures that we use to compare kids with other kids their age to see if they're clinically elevated on depression or anxiety or what have you. And those measures themselves probably take most kids another three or so hours. Um, So altogether for the kid, that ends up being, you know, six to eight hours worth of testing. And then, of course, um, you know, parents fill out probably a couple hours worth of paperwork. And then depending on what other collateral information we get, you know, altogether probably about 12 hours of work for various people involved. And then you have to write it. And, and then we have to write it. Then we have together. to score and it. And that's and why write it. it that's why it costs sometimes uh, a lot more than people would think for a good comprehensive psyche valve. And um, one more question. I know Todd, you need to get going. What would be the difference between a mental health diagnosis and a neurodiverse diagnosis? How are they different? I'm not sure people understand the difference between depression and anxiety and nonverbal learning disorder or something like that, autism, what's the difference between a neurodiverse diagnosis and a mental health diagnosis? I don't know that we really, I don't know that we really differentiate those when we're making the diagnosis because you can look at almost anything, nonverbal learning disorder, probably going to be some, a genetic component to that, right? This is where we might casually say, this is just how your child is wired. It, you could say that for a number of things. You could say that for depression. Right. Often. Anxiety. You, yeah. Depression and anxiety is the reason mental health providers even exist, right? Like <laughs> half the people in a mental health clinic are there for anxiety. Right. Um, I relate well because I have anxiety, right? So I, it's just so common. And so many of these things have a, a genetic component to it. So I don't know if that's answering your question, Jason, but. I don't think we really differentiate in that. Okay. In that yeah. Yeah. I mean, sometimes parents will ask me, and I think this relates to this question, you know, what can we expect down the road? Like what things do we expect to go away and what things are going to stick around? And, um, you know, I always tell parents, 
with things like ADHD, autism, those are things you're born with. Those, like Todd said, your brain is just wired differently and it's always going to be wired differently. But there are things we can do to, you know, research shows us that there are things you can do that actually works to rewire the brain through therapy and training and practice and that kind of thing. But things like autism, I mean, things like anxiety, depression, you know, those are really highly treatable mental health issues. But like Todd is saying, often there's still a genetic component that predisposes people to those issues. So even though we might treat it effectively now, the likelihood of it cropping up somewhere down the road, you know, if there's a major life stressor or just kind of out of the blue is still, you know, we still need to be careful of that. Mm -hmm. So everything is a combination of nature and, and nurture to some degree. Right. So I guess I've always tried to figure out, is this something that can be treated with counseling and or medication and or exercise, or is this something that's just going to be there no matter what you do, but you learn to live with it? And maybe that's true with both areas, anxiety, depression, and something like um, autism or nonverbal learning disorder. So I guess I was just wondering. That's a good, that's a really good question. And it's a good point you're making. I mean, um, I'm very conservative when it comes to recommending psychiatric meds because I um, have been doing this for a long time and I very rarely see cases where a psychiatric medication is going to be the answer to everything. Sometimes it is, but most often it's not, right? And so I'm more of a skills-based sort of approach kind of guy. I think that we want to provide these kids with emotional coping skills, social skills, whatnot. You know, you're right, autism spectrum, nonverbal learning, that's probably more of a, of a lifetime sort of deal where you're going to want to learn skills so that you can function well in society and have successful relationships and, and, and be a, a happy person. Um, but it's the same with anxiety and depression. I mean, like Abby said, those are very treatable. And um, sometimes we use medication to treat those. Um, but often we use, you know, good emotional skills to treat those as well. So there's just one more thing I'd love to ask both of you. What, what are you passionate about? What do you love about your job, about what you do, the people you help? Tell us what you love about what you do every day when you go to work. (laughs) I love, I love if I can really make a difference in that kid's life or in that family's life. And I always think about this as if, what if this were my child? I have four kids and I know what it's like to have a kid that struggles. And so when I'm working with a family and a child, I'm always thinking about what, if this were my kid, how could I make the biggest difference? Right. And so I don't know that I always do make a big difference. I think sometimes I make a difference and my hope is that I always make a difference, but that's the thing that I feel the most strongly about personally is like, can I get them on the right path to treatment? That's why accurate diagnosis is so important. Can I get them on the right path to getting this kid help and to getting this family help? So. Yeah. I, I feel similarly, you know, I, I live for the moments when I have parents tell me that, you know, this was so helpful because they're learning things that they hadn't known before. And maybe some things were uncovered in the testing that the kiddo has never disclosed before, or, you know, they feel like this, they really put all the pieces together of this really disparate puzzle. And, um, you know, I think Todd and I are both realistically optimistic people. And I think, we try to be 
really positive in how we talk to parents about these evaluations. They're really hard to read. It's a lot of difficult information in one place because it's focusing on problems. And I really am passionate about communicating with parents. Like, I know this looks bad on paper, but you know, your kid has a lot of strengths and here are the things, you know, that I think we can do from here to be helpful. Um, And I actually had a kiddo recently who I tested several years ago, who's now in college. And he wrote to me because he's applying for, I had diagnosed him with autism, actually. He's applying for um, disability services through his university. And he asked if I could just fill out a form for him. And he wrote me this such a long, lovely email about, you know, he went from wilderness to residential treatment. And he wrote me this email about how at the time treatment was horrible. But now that he looks back, he's like, it was so helpful. And I know that's what I needed now. And you know, this testing, I think, has really helped me kind of figure out what's going on for me and how my brain works. And I'm I'm so much happier now. And, you know, it's the moments like that, that we all live for that are so rewarding. Oh, yeah. Yeah. As a parent, I remember thinking we're broken. We can't do it right. Nothing we do is working. Every approach we're doing is failing. We're pretty smart people. We, We think we're good parents. We suck. And the right diagnoses may have saved our marriage because Mm. we would fight about like two or 3% difference in what we could do in our son's life to save him from crises. And even though it was going to make very little difference, we were so passionate about our son and we loved him so much that we would, we would really struggle with what to do, right? Like always walking a razor's edge and having the right diagnoses made all the difference in the world. So I do highly recommend getting a good evaluation, not avoiding it. I think that's the argument that parents have sometimes as well. I want them to be able to reach as high as they possibly can. And if I put a label on them, that's going to stunt their growth. And I, I always explain that if you don't understand the battle they're having and that they're going to have, the pitfalls that are going to come because of a description of symptoms called a diagnosis, they're going to end up never reaching their potential. So if you want their potential to be there, then you need to understand their weaknesses and their strengths. And that's what a good evaluation does. So we really appreciate what you do um, for your profession and for your time today. Um, How can people find you if they want to? I think I'm the only Todd Corelli on the planet. So if you (laughs) Google my name, you're going to find me. But I do have a website, drtodtalks.com. And you have some blogs uh, on there too. I, I have some what? Yeah, it's not really a testing website. It's my other passion <laughs> with families and parenting. And so it's mostly that stuff, but you can find me that way. And Abby? Yeah, I, I also have a website. Um, it's abbyjenkinsphd.com, A-B-B-Y-J-E-N-K-I-N-S-P-H-D.com. And that is only only testing and you will see pictures of my dog on there. So that's a main reason to go. Awesome. <laughs> nice. And we'll link to your uh, websites in our show notes for parents that they want to reach out to your. So last thing, I just want to commend you guys because I, obviously you're for lack of a better way of saying this, your hearts are in the right place. Your parents, you've been through this, you run a program, you do this because you really want to make a difference in people's lives. That's really obvious to us that that's why you're in this. That's why you do this podcast. So hats off to you both as well. Thank you. Appreciate that. I feel like we're kind of all birds of a feather here. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. It was great to get to know both of you. 
Thanks for joining us on this episode of Autism and Neurodiversity with Jason and Debbie. If you want to learn more about our work, come visit us at jasondebbie.com. That's J-A-S-O-N-D-E-B-B-I-E.com.